You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Podcast Detroit. This is Liz Reed, your resident guru here. I'm here with my co-host, Julie Hayes. Julie, hey how are you, girlfriend? What's up? What's up? A uh, little stressful week, but you know what? It's Friday. Hey, so, it's whew, been uh, approximately six weeks of mega stress <laughs> yes, for me, so true. I'm going to say that true. right now. Um, but anyways, uh, we have a special guest today we're super excited about. I'm going to introduce him in just a moment. Uh, quickly, I want to give a quick disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes only and not meant to replace treatment or diagnosis by a qualified mental health professional, which would be me, Liz Reed, your resident guru, and my good buddy, Julie. Today we have Douglas Block. Uh, Douglas was introduced to me via Julie, correct, Julie? Yes. Mm-hmm. And he is an author. He is also a depression survivor. He has written many books. Uh, Douglas can tell us more about this, but I figured somewhere around 10, didn't you say 10? I thought it was seven books, but he was Seven books, with co- right? and co- yeah, and co-wrote a couple mm-hmm. of others as well. Everything from depression, anxiety to suicide, including astrology and um, some interesting other things that he did with poems as well. Uh, Douglas is also a YouTube megastar. He has over 40,000 um, subscribers to his website and does some incredible, incredible work, um, helping people heal from depression. So Julie turned me on to one of his books, which is Healing from Depression, 12 Weeks to a Better Mood by Douglas Block. Um, and I use it as a permanent reference for my patients. Um, uh, it's a great book for me to go back and forth from, uh, find out tidbits that I can help, uh, my own patients with, which is awesome. And Julie, you've gotten a lot out of the book as well, correct? Oh, I read through and highlighted it and made yep. notes. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's yep. really, really incredible. So anyways, we want to welcome Douglas Block to the show. Welcome, Douglas. Yay. Yay. Hi, Douglas. How you doing? Hi there. <laughs> How's everything going for you out in Oregon? Oh, Oregon has been absolutely beautiful. Um, we've had an uncharacteristically dry May and oh. it was hmm. rain Thursday and Friday, which is yesterday and, today, and it's not raining. The rain just doesn't seem to want to come here anymore. Hmm. Wow, I don't well, know why. it's here. Well, we've been That's having why. a lot of rain here, <laughs> although it is really sunny in Michigan right now, which we, you know, hold dear to our yes. hearts. Right. And it's not a hundred. We usually go from freezing cold temperatures to sweltering hot. Yes. So we're having a and little humid. break yet, which is wonderful. So, Douglas, one of the first things I wanted to ask you was can you clarify for me? Because I, w- I couldn't get everything down when we talked the other day exactly what you, degrees you hold yeah i have a ba in psychology from new york university which i got in 1971 and a master's in counseling psychology which i got from the uh, university of oregon in 1980 ah i've ne- never really used them formally like unlike yourself i've never really worked for like you know mental health um mm-hmm. you know organizations or stuff like that but they certainly get, give me a lot of information which i've used in my subsequent writings and also in terms of working on my own mental health, which has been a lifelong, you know, Absolutely. challenge. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Lifelong, I've had a lifelong project. How's that? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. I think we can. You all, guys can relate, right? Yes, yes, we can all relate to all of that. Um, it, you know, something. You know, uh, the genesis of your mental health issues. I didn't recall reading that in your book, but can you tell us what it was? You know, when you first started finding uh, or exhibiting signs where there were problems, where you thought something was a little off for yourself. Yeah, well, actually, I went to, you know, back in the East Coast in the 1950s, which is when I was grew up, my parents back then did something which, you know, normal people would never think of doing. They went off to Europe and sent their kids to sleepaway camps. That's what ah. they call them. Like at 9 and 10. Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. But I went. Sure. 
10-11, and uh, there was a psychiatrist who ran this uh, camp in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. It was called Camp Skycrest. Mm-hmm. And when my parents came to pick me up, the psychiatrist said, hey, your son's a little bit off. He lives in the dream world. He's kind of, you know, not really connected to reality very much. I think you should get him to see a psychiatrist. Really? Wow. My mother was very open to it. My mother said, no, 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 he doesn't need that. You know, oh, My yeah. mother never believed in mental health. So, uh, I, I was very timid. I was very shy. I was very nervous. I had a hard time getting to bed at night. But um, when I got into first grade uh, in school, I suddenly dis- discovered that that was an environment I was really comfortable in. I somehow knew how to read before, <laughs> you know, the uh-huh. first grade. And I, I was just I was just very academically inclined. So sure. I did well. Even in elementary school, the kids always came up to me, hey, you know the answer to this or that. I also mm-hmm. like sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was dark. I telling us it was going to rain. <laughs> a little oh, okay. alert from the computers. Anyway, so yeah, so I, I I felt quite adjusted and integrated. I you know prided myself on my achievement and went to high school. Poro was on the tennis team, and then then I went to college in 1967, mm-hmm. freshman at the University of Rochester. And the first day of class, I, I walked, and there was a big protest outside of my building, of class building. It said, "Thou shalt not kill." Mm. Meaning Dow Chemical, meaning napalm. Oh, okay. In other words, uh-huh. protests with Vietnam were, were, were just getting started. Mm-hmm. I was pretty political, but nonetheless, it threw me for a loop. And suddenly, I was in this place where there was a lot of turmoil on the college campus. I wasn't. I didn't have my old routine of going to classes every single like my whole day wasn't structured from mm-hmm. morning to night. Go to school, play basketball, study, watch TV. Go to school, play mm-hmm. basketball, study, watch TV. Yeah, there were huge gaps of times, and I was really emotionally immature. Like the doctor said, so I immediately got homesick, mm, and within yeah. like a week, I felt depressed. Sure, that I happens mean, a lot in college. Quickly. And you know, I later found out running groups that a lot of people uh, start to suffer their first uh, symptoms of depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia between the ages of 18 and 25. Uh, you're absolutely right. One of the reasons that happens is going up to school is a huge thing. Some, I remember someone in a foreign country said, you American parents are so you know callous. Why would you send your kids off away oh. so early before they're ready? <laughs> oh, wow. And, a lot of people, my young people in my millennials group, you know, went to college at, you know, Oregon State, went to the U of O, and they couldn't handle it. They had breakdowns. They had to come back home and ended up in my group. So it's a common thing for, you know, that to be the time when, when people start to notice, you know, uh, or when they come down with symptoms. So I was no different. It was not an easy time to go to school. And mm-hmm. I joined a therapy group. I started seeing a shrink and, you know, any more words than my mother. What's changed? Sure. I, Sure. My mother's supportive, as you can tell. I started noticing symptoms myself when I was 18, and then I've had, you know, I barely graduated college uh, because of my emotional stuff. I have a, I mean, if you want to hear a saga of my personal story, it would take at least two or three hours. I understand. Gone I... Through and done. The point being is that, you know, um, I had the predisposition. My mm-hmm. mother later on had a breakdown at the age of 79. I had to have electroconvulsive therapy five times. Okay. My father was depressed. My brilliant mm-hmm. cousin who went to Harvard, he had a break in college. My brother's on, I've been on Prozac since 1993. So oh, wow. mental illness, depression, anxiety runs in my family way back. And so I had, the, you know, the genetic predisposition. Uh, fortunately, you know, I was raised in a pretty normal 50s environment, you know, went to the New York Yankees games constantly. So I didn't have any over-trauma and abuse in my childhood, although my mm-hmm. mother was cold and critical, you know. But yeah. um, but I did have the genetic predisposition, and once the stressors came about leaving home and going to college, that's when all that stuff came up. Sure. I understand. Yeah, so I was going to add, my next question was going to be a family history because I see a lot of that, you know, young adults going to college. The, the You're right. That is a breaking point for a lot of young adults, especially males at, the, at that age. I see a lot of that. And then, you know, toss in a, a little family history and you have a real disaster on your hands. So tell us a little bit about um, where you went from there, um, you know, the course of action. You married, you you know, where, when was your first breakdown? Uh, my first breakdown was in 1975. I had moved to Oregon to Eugene. I, got, I was working in Yosemite Park, and I met this nice hippie family. I'm still <laughs> friends with their kids today. Mm-hmm. My mother said, hey, go to Eugene, Oregon. It's like Berkeley, but it's a lot mellower. Yeah. Uh, even the even the freaks mow their lawns. And um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I went there and was accepted to the school of education. And I I loved at that point. I was getting to astrology. I wanted to basically teach a, a course on psychology in high school. 
I was already interested in psychology, right? I got my BA in, 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 uh, from New York University. They said, oh, no, no, we don't do that in high school. But look, you were a math minor. You got, like, perfect scores on your SATs. Yeah. Oh, wow. We need math teachers. We're going to send you to a, you know, graduate school and become a math teacher, and that's what happened. Okay. So I got out and with my degree in math education, and but I couldn't get a job, so I was sort of floundering around. Then I met this woman I fell in love with, and, and the first you know relationship I really had, I was 24. And then when she, uh, we, we kind of split up in, in 1970, uh, beginning of 75, and I didn't have structure, and I was grieving. This, this is what has been all these the keys to me of my breakdowns, lots of love. Lack of structure, lack of focus, mm-hmm. lack yeah. of work identity. So sure. I, mm-hmm. Then I had this great idea. I'm going to move down to Berkeley, California, and you know, try getting my my counseling practice going there. What? Yeah. <laughs> my brother had a place. I lived there. But by that time, I, my sleep had been disrupted. I was having anxiety attacks in the morning. And before you knew it, he said, you know, I love you, Douglas, but you're, you're, I, I just can't live with this. So I was out on the streets of Berkeley homeless. Oh. And then I ended up in a halfway house called Berkeley Place Incorporated on Henry uh-huh. Street, right near the Shattuck Street Co-op. Anyway, uh, so that was it. I was in a halfway house. Uh, the other people were interesting. They just they were they were patients in, in the state hospital. Mm-hmm. Looked absolutely horrible. They had been fed crummy food, mm-hmm. and they weren't exercising. And that's when I started to first get the hint that aha, to be mentally healthy, you have to be physically healthy. Hmm, mm. maybe there's a between your physical body and your mood, something I wrote about 40 years later in the book Healing from Depression when I said that the foundation for mental health recovery, number one step besides setting the intention to heal is to get your body in shape. And so I realized that these people, I had one advantage over these people, even though I was more symptomatic than some of them because they were on drugs like, you know, Thorazine and Haldol, uh, that at least I had had a good background in taking care of myself physically Mm Fortunately, uh, a therapist friend in, in Berkeley gave me a key to a local hotel that had a pool and a jacuzzi and a sauna. So I was able to go out, you know, and, and get my hydrotherapy going. So, but yeah, and then in, in, in April, so I was there from December 75 to April 76. And then uh, my friend came back from Guatemala to help me out, my lifelong friend. And we went to Yosemite and I got a job there. And that's what sort of pulled me out of it. Okay. Yeah, so I was not in the psych ward, but I was in a halfway house. And that was my first quote unquote breakdown with, with more to follow in my 30s, 40s, and 60s. Somehow, I, the 50s were nice. I, that was a decade. I didn't end up in any, any uh, institutions or having any major breaks. But yeah, so the first one was in my, uh, I was 26 years old when that breakdown happened. My, my depression started when I was 18. Yeah. You know, um, I wanted to ask you a question, Douglas, because this is a question that um, Julie has asked me and other patients have asked me. After coming out of a depressive episode, a lot of people live in extreme fear of relapse, going back into another depressive episode. What would you say about that? Uh, well, I'll, I'll say two things. First, my personal experience was when I came out, I came out. So it was truly an episode. Right? Yes. Like an episode okay. of, you know, Have Gun Will Travel on, <laughs> I don't know why I bring that up, association, right? Yeah. Like a TV episode, you turn it off and it's done and there you are back again in sure. reality. So when I came out of these things, I just went back to my normal functioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but especially the last time in 2015 when I was hospitalized uh, and I realized, you know, I could no longer be in denial. This was going to be a mm-hmm. chronic lifelong situation. Yeah. I kind of got that in my 40s. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, about, oh my God, maybe if I if I have another breakdown, this one I won't be so lucky. This one I'll end up taking my life. Yeah. Because, you know, all the other episodes had suicidality, uh, as Julia, I know, has shared on this channel for her. Yes. Yep. Oh my God. I mean, and so I started to obsess about relapse, like you said. Mm-hmm. So, well, Doug, look at your book. Why don't you take your own advice? Uh, <laughs> we that, talk about that, that all the time. time. <laughs> has an exercise called Back to the Present. Yeah. Yes. So I decided, okay, I'll read it. I wrote it in 1998. People said, it's good, maybe I should read my own book. So sure. It said, well, so if you start to feel yourself going into the future, catastrophizing, say, cancel, cancel. Mm-hmm. Step two, take a deep breath, ground it in your body, and say, you know what? The future has not come yet. It's still a potentiality, so it can't really hurt me. I'm safe and okay right now. Step number three, refocus. Uh, call a friend, go mm-hmm. for a walk, um, mm-hmm. so, uh, go ahead and, and turn on your, you know, some, some 
show you've recorded or go read a book or, you know, go back and working on your, the book you're writing, which is in my case. In other words, refocus and turn your mind gently away from the thought of relapse and do that however many times you need to mm-hmm. until you get good at it. Now, this is, this is for any kind of catastrophizing, yes. not yep. just yes. fear of relapse. So, and the other thing is, of course, is in 12-step programs, right? This is, this yeah. is the key to my surviving. I'm writing a new book on suicide prevention. This is going to be one of the keys to help people, as Julie can tell you. You have to take it day by day. So today, like right now, uh, I've had some personal challenges, which, which you guys have been aware of, which I'm yes. not going to go into the details on the show. But today, yep. I know that from now until the end of the day, I'm safe. I have a structure. After I do this interview, I'm going to see my personal trainer. Then Joan and I are going to go to, the, uh, to Garden Fever, pick up some flowers for our deck. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to call an old friend. So, you know, I have something to get me through to the end of the day. And that's all I have to worry about. Am I going to relapse tomorrow? Maybe. Sure. When I'm Five years? Maybe. But right now, I don't have to worry about that. I just have to think about the here and now. So, so true. Get yourself in the, in the present. Take a breath. Yeah. Tell yourself, you know, the future is not here. Thought, think of another thought and, and then get through the day. So that's how I deal with my own fear of relapse, which really hadn't happened for quite some time until recently. And after a while you get good at it. Absolutely. And well, another thing, yeah, absolutely yeah. it is practice. And one of the other, you know, you talk in the book a lot about neural pathways um, and how, you know, negative thoughts, you create these neural pathways that end up distorting your thinking and feeling. And um, part of that is your structure, is your schedule, which I preach to my patients all the time in the big E word exercise that nobody wants to hear. Um, you must get physiological. You need to move your body. You need to get out there. You need to do something. Um, as small or as minor as it may be, it doesn't have to be a huge elaborate task as long as it's something that takes your mind off of your repetitive thinking and negative thoughts. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, you know, way back when I moved to Portland, so, you know, to kind of bring listeners up to date, after I did my my uh, my uh, degree in math education, had my breakdown, I came back to Eugene and uh, that meant another woman uh, moved in and, and uh, got my master's degree in counseling and then had a breakdown when that didn't work out. Anyway, yeah. I ended up in Portland, Oregon, where I, where I now live. Uh, finally got some stability, bought a home, um, you know, married Joan, my partner. And then I was on uh, listening to the radio the other day. There was an interview going on, and uh, this guy named Tony Robbins came on the phone. I love him. Yes. Yep. Yep. Can you hold on for one second? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Tony Robbins is a favorite oh my of mine. Gosh, I Absolute know. favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, he has all kinds of stuff on he YouTube. He doesn't like to call and... himself a positive uh, what, what, life changer. I forget what he calls himself, but it's pretty interesting. It's something uh-huh. around there. Go anyway, ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry, Doug. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So Tony Robbins, who I'd never heard of, said, came on, he said something I never forgot. He's, of course, this great this personal yeah. motivator. Sure. He's written a book called Unlimited Power. Yep. He also wrote a book called Awaken the Giant Within. Yep. He got famous by having people walk on coals. What an insane thing to do, by the way. Yeah, sure. I'm not a fan of that, but no. anyway. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Dollars, million bucks, I wouldn't do it. Seriously, right, yeah. all the money in the, mint, uh, in the treasury of the United States, I would not walk on coals. Anyway, he said there are two ways to change your state of mind. Mm-hmm. One, change your physiology. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the quickest. And number two, change the way you look at the world. Yep. You frame the way you look at the world, you know, and that was all the way back in, 84. I mean, I hadn't written any of my books or really gotten to any of my real research, but yeah, change your physiology. So here's the thing. Not only does exercise, like you say, take your mind off your repetitive thoughts, but here's how it does it. So my, my, I have a friend who was had a break. He was in the, the state actually mental hospital here in Portland. <laughs> and he was, um, you know, thinking all these crazy thoughts. He was obsessing. So I said, Hey, John, why don't you and I ride our bikes up to the top of Rocky Butte, which mm-hmm. is a 500 foot extinct volcano. I just got into road cycling and he was pretty strong. He was younger, 20 years younger than I was, but he hadn't had much practice cycling. So I said, okay. He said, let's do it. It was his day off. I had a day pass to take him out of the hospital. Yeah. He got to the top of the, of the hill. He was going, <sighs> and he, he was literally, you know, about to, Faint yeah. because he was hyperventilating, sure. mm-hmm. trying to catch his breath. And I said, "Okay." When we got to the top, were you thinking about you know uh, the government coming after you or you yeah. know people in the hospital True. poisoning your food? Were you having any of those thoughts? He said, "No." All I was just thinking about was you know getting my next breath. <laughs> yes. Precise. <And> then <laughs> he 
said, wow. I said, what's going on? He said, well, something's kicking in. I, I, I'm suddenly to feel, I'm beginning to feel really good and mellow and, and peaceful. I said, oh, yeah, they call that runner's high when I was in Eugene in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. The endorphins kick in. Sure, yeah. I said, you see what riding up Rocky Butte does on your bike? Me, A, it takes your mind off your, your repetitive and, you know, and, and horrifying thoughts. And B, it changes these chemical, you know, it, it creates chemicals in your brain like endogenous morphines. Morphines within is what endorphin stands for. Mm-hmm. And you're feeling good. And number three, I couldn't tell him this because I hadn't known it yet, something called neurogenesis happens. Okay, so when we were all in medical school, even though I wasn't there, I mm-hmm. wanted to be a doctor. They said, hey, you're given a certain amount of brain cells when you're born, and mm. then each day you live, they die, die, die one at a time, <laughs> and you keep losing them. Well, no. Right. It turned out it's not true. There's something called neurogenesis, which you can kind of figure out, neurons, genesis, yeah. birth. Yes. Your brain actually can create new nerve cells, mm-hmm. and it's number one thing that stimulates that, according to the New York Times, uh, is steady-state exercise, you know, and they, of course, they looked at the brains of cyclists, you know, who were cycling and compared to the brains of, you know, younger people who weren't cycling, and sure enough, the, the cyclists had, you know, more neurons than the ones who didn't. I'm not quite sure how they quantified it, but yes, sure. exercise will help you grow new brain cells, make you starter, smarter, prevent cognitive decline, make you feel better. If there was anything called a miracle cure or a panacea in this world, it would be exercise. I, agree. I am so I agree on board. Mm-hmm. In fact, this week... You can't say yeah. it enough. Of course, the problem is, as some of your listeners may know, who are dealing with depression, well, when you're depressed, you're not motivated to <laughs> no, do very no, much. No, no, you're not, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. But past 22, if I could get mm-hmm. out, I'd feel better, but exactly. I can't get out. So yep. here's the solution, call on the troops. So in my particular case, the first support group I ran in 2001, there were these three women who coincidentally were in the group. They were all about the same age. And they happened to live in the same neighborhood. Oh, did they? they said, hey, wow. You know, so, so, Ann and Betty and Jean, why don't that. you guys get together and meet at like nine o'clock and go for a walk in, in Mount Taper Park, you know, in a beautiful place in the neighborhood and go, go for your morning walk together. Well, none of them could get out of bed by themselves, but when they knew <laughs> the other two were expecting them or they liked the other two and wanted to join them, mm-hmm. it was no problem. So they, so they, they formed this little group. I guarantee you that left to themselves, nobody would have yes. done anything, which is sure. my, which is my second, by the way, I have three principles of mental health recovery, which I talk about in the book. The first is setting the intention to heal. Uh-huh. Okay, so these are things I've seen in every single person I've either helped professionally or I, I've, you know, or family members or friends have helped, including myself. And this is what Julie did. Actually, Julie, it was amazing that you you wrote that vision statement in between hospitals and that it, it's hospitalizations, and it actually came true. I as you know, can tell great. The listeners it- in a minute, but anyway, you have to make the decision you want to get well. Yep, it's true. like the alcoholic has to make the decision he wants to stop drinking. Amen to that. Until that decision is made, nothing can happen. Yep. But when it is made, I have a I have a quote in my book, you know, from the philosopher Goethe that says, "All manner of things move in your favor." That you know, the heavens, the universe moves to basically bring you the people, the circumstances, whatever you need to make that intention happen. Once you make that commitment, that decision to heal. Uh, yeah, I think that he called it commitment. Number two is you have to reach out for support. Because people can only heal in community. Well, mm-hmm. we found that out with Alcoholics Anonymous. Before 1935, alcoholism was an incurable progressive disease. You either had death, jails, or institutions. You know this, yep. Liz, because yes. you're recovering. Yep. Then these two drunks got together one night, and they found that by chatting with each other, they could they could stop drinking because they were they were they were each in community. Yep. They were both in community, mm-hmm. and so that's how AA started. Yep. So mm-hmm. yeah, if could it, understand each other. It, and alcohol, it's got to work in recovery for mental health. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so this is the second thing. And the third thing is to treat your symptoms using a combination of mutually supportive therapies. One of my um, videos says uh, it takes more than a pill to heal from depression. Because even when a pill does work, there's something called Prozac poop out. And that's not a name I made up. That's a professional term. Sure. And said sometimes drugs will stop working for no apparent reason. Then what do you do? Uh, yeah. Well, if that's the only thing you've been depending on, you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're out of luck. But if you've been exercising, if you have social support, if your diet's been good, if you've been getting good sleep, if you've been meditating or praying or yes. you know having structure, routine, or having a purpose, all the, the forty-five things I mentioned, you know. Uh, you don't have people writing in or anything like that, do you? In the show, do people ever send emails? Um, you know, we're we're That's hoping for that. That's yeah. our goal. Yeah, yeah, we'd love that. We'd love well, to actually take way. live I'm calls. I'm going to give my email address, douglasblog@gmail.com, <laughs> and if anybody wants one, I will send you a free color diagram that I put 
it took about 20 years to put together, of five oh, areas of self-care. Yeah, yeah that's a great one, that too. have activities, mm-hmm. that each of which will, I won't say guarantee, but each of which is designed to help produce the chemical changes in your brain that will increase your mood. Judy, Julian, you have seen it because it's in my book. Oh, definitely, it, yeah. Yep. I've yeah, seen so you... If you um, combine I... intention plus tools plus support, you'll make progress. So this, so going back to exercise, yes, if you can't get up the motivation to do it by yourself, have a friend, have a family member, join a club, take a class, do it in community, it's much easier. You know, uh, Douglas, I um, have always said to my patients, whether in addiction, depression, or anxiety, that are ashamed of what's going on with themselves, that in order to truly recover, you have to, quote-unquote, own your shit. (laughs) You've got to understand that this is part of who you are. You have to accept it. You have to work at it every day. You have to make things happen in order to recover. Um, If you're going to live in secrecy, if you're going to be enabled by your family to not leave the house, to not do anything about it, and hope that one day you're going to wake up and it sure, it will have passed all on its own, which would be a miracle and, and a lovely thing to do. Or they come into my office and are looking for fairy dust, which I don't <laughs> have on hand. Um, you know, it's not going to happen. I, and I think we can all three agree that it takes some real work on your part to get your life back. And, 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 and then they say you're only as sick as your secrets. Yes, yes. Exactly, so, without yep. a doubt. So here's, so here's the problem, though. It, it's more so with depression than addiction. In, it's a five-letter word ending in A and beginning with S. It's called stigma. Yes, oh, yeah. that's the worst. Illness is so still. It's, no, it's not as bad. In other, it, it's actually better here than in other countries. Mm-hmm. I get in my YouTube live chats that Julie has been a part of. By the way, you know, a little promotion. Every Sunday at uh, at noon Pacific time, you just go onto my YouTube channel, uh, which you can go to YouTube and put in Douglas Block with an H, depression. Anyway, so in these live chats... People call in from all over the world, or they don't call in. They they do these, you know, threads, these conversations. Yeah, threads, and they're great. So I get people from Vietnam, from the, yeah. from Asia. Oh, you think depression's a shame based thing here? Oh, go oh. to Asia. Oh my god, go to, yeah. go, go to Pakistan, where I have one of my. You know, go to uh, yeah, you know, Latin countries. Seriously, yeah. yes, it's I know. More shame. It's, it's, it, people are even more, unlo- even less likely to talk about their mental illness in those countries than in America. Mm-hmm. America is getting better, but even here, people will not, when they go to work, to help tell their coworkers they have a depressive illness or mm-hmm. anxiety disorder. Um, so uh, you you have to go, basically be willing to come out of the closet, so to speak, right? And, yes. And, and you know, say it loud. I'm depressed and I'm proud. Right? Remember that yeah. song. <laughs> You know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Say it loud, I'm depressed and I'm proud. And that's why the National Alliance on Mental Illness or NAMI is so yeah. great because every every year, we just had one here in Portland on May 18th, they have this NAMI walk, kind of like walk for the cure for, yep. you know, for us, for cancer, mm-hmm. where people get together in the thousands and, and, you know, and walk around the Esplanade in Portland and say, hey, you know, here, here here's here's the thing. In 1999, when Tipper Gore was uh, vice president, for those of you, well, some mm-hmm. of you not, may not have been alive. We were back alive. Then. That's not that long ago, <laughs> but 20 years ago? Yeah. yeah. Exactly 20 years ago. Well past that. Uh, it was actually 1998. She asked David Satcher, the attorney, the Surgeon General, to do a report on the nation's mental health. Mm. It came out on December 13th, 1999. Uh, you can look it up in the New York Times. And, uh, yeah, it was 99. And it said, in any given year, this is, this is like... In the New York Times, for something to get on the right column of the page, it is the big story. So it's, this is what it said. 22% of Americans afflicted by a mental health disorder in any given year and 50% over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. That, means out of, that means one out of two people in this country have had either depression or anxiety. And by the way, they threw in addiction, chemical dependency. Sure. Because the National Institute of Drugs, you know, the NID says that... that uh, Addiction is a brain disease, just like just like depression is. They don't they don't really distinguish the two a whole lot. Sure, so it's the chicken you, you or the egg. all those things, and one out of two. Well, think about it. Do I know anyone who's recovering from alcohol? Oh yeah, all my friends in A. Do I know anyone who's depressed? Yeah, myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, in X Y Z. I mean, we all know someone who's struggling with a mental health disorder or an addiction. Mm-hmm. So what's the shame? It's human. It's part of the human condition. So if you normalize it like that then it's okay. And once you admit you've got the problem and you're not afraid to talk about it, then you can go seek help, whether it's in a group or individual therapy or a call-in show you know, or even go to the bookstore and get a book. But I, I, we just have to normalize this. But oftentimes it's a weak will, you know, you're not trying hard enough, you know, failure of sure. uh, you know, a, a character flaw. Well, you've heard all this. Uh, of course. In, in of your course. own recovery from alcoholism. 
You've heard all the things that people think about addicts, right? Sure, oh, sure. Yeah. That's why I own all my stuff. I mean, that's why I'm here doing this right now. I'm sure it's why you do what you do. This is why Julie's here doing this with me. I mean, the, I, we, I stay healthy by helping others. Exactly. It's it's something that I want to I want to do. I want to help other people feel better. You know, uh, I want to make sure that we get to um, Douglas talking about antidepressants. And you and I discussed this on the phone earlier. How some antidepressants just don't work for people. Uh, in my case, with general anxiety disorder. I know you have depression and general anxiety disorder. Um, I, I don't know what measures on personally, but antidepressants do not work for me. They make my anxiety 10 times worse than it ever was. Um, I take a small dose of Xanax as needed, um, which helps me. It levels me out. It keeps me calm. I don't get high. I am just normal or better, right? And you and I were talking about how benzodiazepines have really been stigmatized um, and uh, demonized as this horrific drug that everybody's going to be addicted and and go to hell in a handbasket if they take it. You can only get one or two or whatever. I see a psychiatrist for mine, but I'll tell you what, I called the other day to get my script refilled. I couldn't remember when I had the last one done and I was a couple days early and they really made me feel very um, insecure, really like, what are you trying to pull? I'm like, I just simply was unaware when I got the last script. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on benzos and antidepressants? And, and do they work for everybody? I don't think you agree with that. Douglas? Well, there's a, there's a line, maybe it's in you know the Bible somewhere. One man's meat's another man's poison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or as Paul Simon said in one of his songs, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. Yep. Those of you know who Paul Simon is, I feel bad for you. Anyway. <laughs> oh, no, you're a little ex-hippie. I know you're an ex-hippie. I dig it. Okay, go ahead. The Great Wolf. Yeah. Hey, Simon and Garfunkel were mainstream. They weren't just hippies. Oh, they're they were awesome. Yeah. People. Uh-huh. But anyway, they're because they were an amazing, amazing group. But mm-hmm. so, what do I mean by this? Well, Paxil has been approved for the F by the FDA for the treatment of anxiety. So some people take Paxil and their anxiety diminishes. Yeah. And other people take Paxil, like when I took it in, in 1996 during my, my mm-hmm. uh, breakdown in my 40s, I mm-hmm. took one, I was somehow working at U.S. Bank, don't ask me how, in the customer service department. <laughs> and back there, the, you know, back then, you had to, t- to keep your job, you had to take at least 25 calls in an hour or oh, 60 minutes. Wow. That seems like a lot, but oftentimes oh, people were just calling, you know, to ask for their balance oh. or could you transfer something from checking to savings. Sure. I took Paxil that that morning, and I became so agitated and manic. Yeah, I got to work, and and the call came in. Yes, yes, you have two hundred dollars in your bank account. Yes, thirty five dollars <laughs> checking savings. Yes, your Visa card is overdue. Yes, I was like on speed. And at the end of the day, the supervisor came over and said, "Oh my God, you have broken the record for taking most calls in an hour." I, I didn't think you were going to work out of this job. But oh, my God, you proved me wrong. What's what's come over you? Oh, man. That's <laughs> funny. Myself, that's yeah, funny. I'm having an adverse reaction to this antidepressant, and that's the last time I'm going to take it. No you know, kidding. Oh. Mr. Brock, I'm so disappointed. You're just back to your old oh. weight. <laughs> this is absolutely a complete true story. Joan, right? You can vouch for it. Oh, but God. anyway, the point sure. being is that, that, that um, for some people, antidepressants, especially the SSRIs, Yes. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac. Yes. Notice they don't have Z's and X's, Prozac, Zoloft, Effexor, yeah. uh, Lexapro, and Selexa. Those those were the big five, right? Yeah. All Z's and X's. Uh, anyway, for those SRIs, SSRIs, for some people, will make them highly agitated and give, even in some cases, something called akathisia, yes. which, is, mm-hmm. which is what I had, a, a restlessness, uh, and not even being able to stand still. It's a, it's a really bad medical condition. And yet other people will take the same drugs yeah. mm-hmm. and they will be right. calm. The serotonin will come in. And, sure. Okay, so what does this mean? It means like not only do you, is there not a one you know pill that helps everyone, that two different people can take the same antidepressant and have completely opposite reactions. So yep. what do you do? Well, I went to the top psychiatrist in Portland and I said, what do you do? He said, oh, I hate to tell you this, don't tell anybody else I said this, but you're all a bunch of guinea pigs. Yes. Yeah, that's true. true. That's what I, I say to my patients. That is not to put psychiatry down right. or to put in it. Yeah, exactly. Down. I mean, in yeah. the stage we are, true. medically speaking, in terms of understanding how the brain works, this is the best we've mm-hmm. got. So it truly is trial and error. That's what all shrinks it will is. say. Try yep. four to six weeks, see what happens. So for people who have a tendency or an oversensitivity 
to drugs like I do and like Liz does, and maybe Julie, but certainly me and Liz. Yeah. The thing is, the answer is simple. If you're going to try a new medication, again, we're not prescribing. This is educational, information only. Yes. Try to start small. Talk to your doctor yeah. about it. Take half the minimum dose and work your way up. Yep. That will minimize the impact. Uh, uh, and I did a whole video of this called The Deadly Side Effect of Antidepressants, not to scare people, but mm-hmm. simply to make people aware that for some people, if they right. take too much too soon, they can become agitated. That being said, I am not against antidepressants. I've seen them help too many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just they have. They need to be taken judiciously and with caution yeah. and with proper supervision. Right. Mm-hmm. Doug, Douglas, I want to add, I don't know if you remember, but I, I did have the same agitation that you had when I took Zoloft. And it physically, it was just absolutely terrible. I had this burning, um, tri- prickly sensation going up and down my arms, and I wanted to jump out of my skin. It was terrible. Mm, like a rush. And, and I ended mm-hmm. up in, uh, that was my first hospital visit, was more from the agitation rather than the depression. And it's my so, first hospitalization I write about in Healing from Depression, yeah. the first the first chapter is my mem- the first half of the book is mm-hmm. my memoir called yeah, I'm Going Through Help and Stop. Yeah. And and how I ended up in St. Vincent's on September seventh, nineteen ninety six. By right. the way, I'm kind of a savant for dates, sorry about that. But anyway, yeah, I took Effexor, an yeah. X, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had the same reaction and Jones said uh, my my partner said, Call the hospital and said, What's going on? And the person who picked up says, Oh, he has an agitated mm-hmm. depression, get him in here immediately. So my first hospitalization came Came because of an adverse or what? There's a word, paradoxical. That's the word, the paradoxical yes. reaction yep. to yep. a Texor, mm-hmm. which is Zoloft, except it's an SNRI, oh, but yes. you know, yeah. who's pulling hairs? Now, mm-hmm. in terms of the benzodiazepines, that's the second thing you asked me about. Yeah. And I agree with you, they've been overly maligned. Again, no mm-hmm. prescriptions here. I'm not telling people to take benzos. Nope. I'm just saying I've seen them from my own personal experience help me and other people when used. Judiciously, of course, they're not used for long-term use. And you and I, Liz, both take. Well, I take clonopin. I think I don't know. You take Xanax. Xanax, yeah. Uh huh. It's PRN as needed. Yes. So I am. Mm-hmm. I know enough about dependency to not. Oh, well, this is really good. I feel so good. Maybe I'll take it tomorrow or the next day. That's how it. That's how an addict thinks, right? Yes. More pills are better. No, I I take it when I need it. Yep. And and then maybe a week or two will go by. It's like Ambien. I'll take Ambien for sleep. I know people say, oh, my God, you shouldn't take sleep medication. Well, I've talked to my psychiatrist, you know, once, twice or twice a month is not is sure. not going to make you, a, you know, an addict or dependent on it. And yet it can be very useful on days when I get stressed and I can't go to sleep. So I think all these medications, you know, are have their place. And, and thank God we've got them. Absolutely. And one of the worst things that can happen to you is lack of sleep. You want to go into a psychotic oh, yeah. episode. Lack of yeah, sleep. No, that, that is, that is, uh, there's a guy named Matthew Walker who's interviewed on a podcast called, um, I forgot, uh, The Drive by Peter Atia. Highly recommend that interview. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep. He's down at Berkeley, down the I 5 car, the best researcher on sleep in the world. And he talks about, he scares you about hmm. what happens when you get five hours of sleep versus seven or eight oh. in terms of yeah. uh, your immune system, your reproductive system, your cardiovascular system, cancer. Everything goes to shit. Excuse my. Yeah, no, you're correct. Everything goes awry when your sleep is disrupted, and that's what's so horrible. The the for me, when I was on the lock board in my 30s, from my second episode, it was because I was getting to bed at 11 o'clock every night and waking up at one. Oh, oh boy! Good I was Lord. in the halls there, and and I was starting to get suicidal. They put me in the mm-hmm. lock board. I'll yep, guarantee there we you. Go. Next step. And if you get two hours of sleep for a long enough period of time you will go stark raving mad. Yes. And then, interestingly enough, in, in, in 1997, a woman uh, who was getting her doctoral degree here in Portland, very, very bright gal, came called me up to come into my support group, and she had gone four months sleeping two to three hours a night. My and when word. she came to the group, she was on the verge of being hospitalized. And fortunately, of course, she had a psychiatrist who then did the smart thing of prescribing her something called Seroquel. Yes, that's now, a great Seroquel one. Seroquel is an antipsychotic drug like Thorazine is back in the old days. Mm-hmm. But Seroquel is now prescribed for an off-label use, meaning it's for people who can't get to sleep who are highly anxious. Yep. They gave her 400 milligrams, which is a huge dose, mm. and her sleep got normalized. She avoided going to the hospital, and eventually she got better. Oh, uh, things like okay. amitriptyline, Remeron, and Remeron. Trazodone are, yeah. are medications that are antidepressants, but in small doses, 
they can help people sleep. Mm -hmm. Because sleep is both a symptom of depression and a cause of it, I have to tell the listeners out there, as you would say too, Liz, that you must take care of sleep disruptions and nip them in the bud. If they become chronic, it is going to be hell not only on your mental health, but more importantly, according to Matthew Walker, on your physical health. Without a doubt. When I was working on the psych ward, um, one of the first things when I would go to assess a patient is I would ask them, one of the very first things was, how much sleep have you gotten? And uh, in determining that, I would say to the nurses, put them down, give them whatever they need. They need to go to sleep for a day, and then I'll revisit this situation. Because they had gone so long without sleep, there was no kind of, you know, lucid thoughts were going to come from them. They had no ability to give me any straight context of what has gone on for the last four months. So sleep, you know, sleep is vital. It's one of the earliest forms of torture. I mean, oh. it, you know, and, and, sleep and deprivation. It should, it should be outlawed, mm-hmm. right, sleep deprivation. Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely. horrible. It's solitary confinement. It's just cruel oh, and oh, it's horrible. to the ninth degree. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, Matthew Walker says that uh, the reason we sleep, like, you know, you you and I and, and Julie, we're all kind of very, you know, productive, go-getting people. I've often yeah. wondered, like, why do I have to waste a third of my life doing <laughs> nothing? How many more books could I write, right? Yeah. yeah. And... Yeah, but Matthew Walker said, no, you don't realize that evolutionary speaking, the reason that that sleep occurs in every living organism is especially in the higher, you know, level organisms like, you know, primates and, and mammals and, and us, because the brain needs this time to regenerate, yep. to heal, to clean out all the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the toxic proteins that build up in Alzheimer's. That's why, that's how they got onto this, the importance of sleep when they noticed that people with Alzheimer's had had a history of poor sleep. Mm-hmm. So uh, that doesn't yeah. mean if you have poor sleep, you're going to get Alzheimer's. I'm not going to, you know, no. get, get anybody frightened here. But I'm just saying that the the number one reason we sleep is for the brain. Yeah. Because the brain's the most important organ in the body. I guess the heart, if it stops beating, you're, you're dead, right? But the brain needs time to regenerate. And there are all these things that go on during sleep, which, of course, people didn't know until they started putting people in sleep bag labs and mm-hmm. hooking them up to all these, you know, uh, EKGs and other things than that to realize that, that, uh, well, if you read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, you'll see what, you know, all the intricacies of what goes on. But it is a biological necessity, says yes. Matthew Walker, not a luxury. Without and a so doubt. I got, okay, if I want to do the work I came here to do on, on the planet and do my writing and my teaching and, you know, whatever else is going on, unfortunately, it's a biological necessity that I need to get a certain amount of sleep. End of story. Stop fighting yeah. it, Douglas. Accept it. Yep. Hey, Douglas, I want to change gears a little bit here and, and ask you um, about the spiritual aspect of your recovery. You write a lot about that in Healing from Depression in your mm-hmm. memoir. Yeah. Um, can you right. talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, since the... Uh, so, as you know, in, in America, we have a wonderful thing called freedom of religion, right? Mm-hmm. All sorts of different people can work. This is why I guess the Puritans or someone came over here from England, right? Yeah. Anyway, there, there's um. So there was a gal named Mary Baker Eddy in New England, mm-hmm. who uh, I don't know what happened. In the story: she fell down and, and hurt herself, and she found that by just I don't know thinking about her body is perfect in God's eyes, or you know, whole and perfect. She got better. This started something called Christian Science, mm-hmm. where. They go really extreme. They say not only can 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 you through the power of thought heal your body, but they say don't use any medica- medications, which is, I oh, think well. is a, that's 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 black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was this there was a woman named who's a who was a student of Christian Science named Myrtle Fillmore, lived in the Midwest, and back in the 1800s, tuberculosis was. Um, as we know, was was incurable. Yes, uh, they sent you to sanitariums. That was about the best they can do, right? Yep. Her grandfather died of it. Her father died of it, and she was diagnosed. Oh. So you know, it was it was basically a mm-hmm. death sentence. Anyway, one day she went into a, a, a lecture by a student of Mary Baker Eddy, uh, named Doctor Weeks W E K S, and uh, he talked about you know the, the, the thinking cure. Uh, anyway, she walked out of that 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 uh, that talk with a, with a revelation. She said, "I am a child of God, and therefore I do not inherit sickness." Mm. That was it. I'm a child of God, and therefore I do not inherit sickness. She kept repeating that to herself. She asked her husband Charles to think of repeated. She asked her neighbors to. And over the course of, I think, maybe a year, maybe sure, she 
completely was healed of tuberculosis, never to return again wow. without any medical intervention. So he like- said, well, Myrtle, oh my God, I mean, I, I got this condition. Can you pray for me here? Or I've got mm-hmm. that condition. So sure. slowly people started to form around their, their household. And out of that was, was born a church called Unity. Actually, uh, you guys are near Warren, Michigan. Yes. The most yeah. famous Unity Church in America was called the Church of Today. And it been, was there. Yeah. By been there. Been there. I've been there. Marianne Williams. Yep. Y- yes. Yeah. Yep. She's not there I, any longer, right. but yes, been there many times. I would that church. Jack Boland is a, is a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, not too many people have heard of him because he never wrote a book to leave behind in his, you know, when he mm. died. But there's tons of tapes. Unfortunately, only a very small segment of people know who this guy is. But so Unity was founded, and so Unity is about it's 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 called it's part of a movement called New Thought. So they use affirmations, which I wholly believe in. And so does, of course, the people in a. You know, there's a book by One Day at a Time and Alan, which is nothing but affirmations. Yeah. And so the idea is that that thought and energy and matter are interchangeable. Like E equals M C squared. Einstein quantum physics, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Sure. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, meaning that. When you split the atom, right, you release all this energy, which is why it's so destructive. Or, I guess, in nuclear power plants, they're trying to make it more productive. But so, if that's the case, if if, if matter is simply slow down thought, then you should be able to using the power of thought, you know, to basically manifest things. And there's a book called this. You know, there's a whole thing called the Secret. There was a big, you know, sure, yes, book all about video it. Video on that. Mm-hmm. Talking about that, although it's a bit simplistic. So. Mm-hmm. So I was going to a church here with a woman named Mary Madison, Mary Madison Morrissey, who was a student or a, ment- a protege of Jack Moland mm-hmm. there in Warren, Michigan, and uh, it was called the Living Enrichment Center. And because I'd written books on affirmations, like my book Words That Heal, and had studied them, this church was just you know their ideals and their 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 principles were very in harmony with my own. So mm-hmm. I started going there, and then I started teaching there. Anyway, you know, fast forward to 96, 97, when I had this bad reaction to effects or came out of the hospital, had this akathisia, but guess what? When the drunk left my body, the agitation stayed. My brain oh. had been uh, altered. Yeah, mm, yep. like, rewired. I'd been pushed over the threshold. Oh, yeah. And there I was, every day getting up, pacing back and forth, hitting myself in the head. Oh, no. It was a nightmare, a complete yeah. and total nightmare. Yeah. And pretty soon, after a while, I, I did get into an outpatient program, which fortunately my insurance company paid for. So I had structure and routine in connection with people, all the things that I write about in my book. But after a while, it started to wear on me. And I started to say, look, if this is, if this is the way it's going to be forever, mm-hmm. uh, there, was, there was a phrase that kept repeating in my head, madness or suicide, it's yours to decide. Meaning, you've got two choices, Douglas. You can either live in this hell eternally, or you can just put yourself out of your misery and kill yourself. Mm-hmm. So I started, like Julie, to plot yep. ways I could do this. Anyway, <laughs> yep. I was at this church, and there was a prayer box. So every week, every Sunday, I would put a note, say, Hi, this is Douglas. I've got the suicidal depression. I don't know if I can, ha- you know, I'm desperate. <clears throat> I don't know how much longer I can handle this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Ma- Mary Morrissey, a friend of mine who was the minister, <clears throat> got a hold of these messages and called me up and said, You know, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to um, suck in a lozenge. She said, mm-hmm. You know, why don't we all get together as a group and see if we can do together what we couldn't do, but we we can't do by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So she invited me and Joan and my social worker and my best friend. <clears throat> they had the pastoral ministry team. They had uh, Mary and her assistant minister, Michael Moran. They all met in a room. <clears throat> and Mary had just given a, a talk on something called the mental equivalent. A short book by Emmett Fox, who was a new thought writer, that said that before anything manifests in the outer world, there must be first a mental equivalent mm. in the world of thought. So she said, if you were well and whole and you were no longer suicidally depressed, what would your life be like? So I wrote down a description and she made photocopies and gave copies to everybody and said, okay, tomorrow at nine o'clock, Whatever you guys are doing around that time, I want you to take this vision statement of wellness that Douglas wrote. I want you to read it, and I want you to think of him as whole and well. It's called absent healing. Mm-hmm. I want you to do it for thirty days, and we'll meet again. Wow. Well, of course, not everybody you know had the discipline to do that, but on the third day, 
Mm-hmm. The Easter, right? The resurrection on the third day. This sure. is my wedding anniversary, July 17th. Mm. Um, I woke up. I was waiting for my leg to start twitching. I was yeah. waiting for my yeah. start pacing. I was waiting to want to kill myself. And yeah. no, I wow. feel like... I no, love this, this story. Not, not in 72 hours. No, this is not going to happen. Yeah. I got up. I felt normal. And... um the next day, I went hiking with my good friend up in the Columbia River Gorge. She said, what's come over you? You're not hitting yourself in the head. You seem a lot calmer. I said, well, there was this meeting on on, on, on Monday, and you know, we, we, we started to hold this vision of wellness, and I wrote this statement down, and I'm feeling better. So, so the Sunday service came around. I said, Mary, what's going on? And she said, oh, you were just, you know, you were just filled with a dose of life. You, that oh, was a, she said that lovely. was a God meeting. Wow. Yeah. And uh so then we started to meet once a month and by the end of the year so mm-hmm. so this did not happen overnight. Let me let me get you straight. I mean, I would say that my symptoms were fifty percent better within the first week and then the other fifty percent took from June until December. But by mm-hmm. the time December came along, especially October. So within three months I would say it was ninety percent better. I mean yeah. these so here's the thing about suicidality, any of you mm-hmm. people listening have that have that problem because it is the tenth leading cause of death in America. Yes. And by the time we are done with the show, five people in this country will have taken their own lives. And I think oh, unnecessarily. So that's why I'm writing this book and and Julie has been very, very helpful in supporting me on this. Mm-hmm. Um when the pain gets turned down from a ten to a nine to an eight, even an eight. Yes. You still may be suffering. Life mm-hmm. still may be a bitch. Yeah. But you're not thinking of putting yourself out of your misery. Why? Because the pain has gotten turned down sufficiently. So mm-hmm. if I were 60 or 70% kill, uh, healed by the, uh, that was a Freudian slip, yeah. by, uh, by October, <laughs> I was no longer thinking about suicide. I yes. mean, I wasn't thinking about suicide after the first week because the level of suffering had been diminished sufficiently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's how that spiritual healing occurred. Now, have I been able to reproduce it? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Is it something that just was grace? Absolutely. Yep. However, that being said, there was a principle that came out of that healing, and, and that is called the vision statement of wellness, which is which is in chapter one of my, my book, Setting the Intention to Heal. It still works, not quite as <clears throat> quickly. Like I think, Julie, you said you wrote your vision statement and you were back in the hospital, oh, but then eventually yeah. your life is coming to, into, you know, into alignment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that corresponds in many ways like the vision statement so it didn't happen overnight but it did eventually happen right oh mm-hmm. it's amazing yeah, yeah. It, it, i would yeah. say about a year later well yeah I, so so it, but it's the first step and if you can get other people to believe it for you yes you know, i was extremely fortunate that i had the support of 12 people thinking about me every day you have a good but tribe you have a mm-hmm. you have a brother you have a sister you have mm-hmm. a a spouse, you have a friend, you have a, a rabbi priest ministry, you've got your therapist. I mean, most people have at least somebody, not everybody, because people do write me that they say mm-hmm. they have no one, but most of us are blessed with some sort of social connection, and you can go to that person or people and say, here is my vision of wholeness and wellness when I get out of this hell. Could you please at least think of me every now and then and hold this vision with me? Or you can do it you know, when you meditate in the morning, whatever. When you enlist the support of other people, there's a phrase, I think, in the New Testament, whenever two or, or three are gathered in my yeah, name, yeah, yeah. I'm there, I'm in the there midst of you. What does that actually mean metaphysically? Mm-hmm. Whenever two or three who are gathered in my name, a person's name is their nature, really. So when, when that cosmic consciousness, the Christ consciousness, the force, the higher power, whatever you want to call it, when numerous people hold that, then miracles happen. Again, getting back to AA, there was no cure for alcoholism until two people came together, mm. two or more were together holding the thought of recovery. So th- this is such a simple yet powerful principle. It, it is, is not made use powerful. of enough. I mean, psychiatry, unfortunately, has been medicalized. These pills are great. But when I was ill for nine months, I must have seen about 10 psychiatrists, and all they did was take a blindfold, put it around their eyes. There was a dartboard with, with different yeah, little, you know. Sure. Sections said yeah. Prozac, once said Zoloft, and they, you know they went ahead and threw a dart, wrote a prescription. You're out of here. Yeah. Did anybody talk to Same me about uh, spiritual healing? Did anybody talk to me about exercise? No, God, no. Did anybody talk to me about community? Zero. Hell no. I got absolutely no help. Uh, now, I have seen psychiatrists help me. Psychiatrists are really important people because they they have the potential to help many people, and many of them do. But 
it, you, you, this whole idea of, um, of needing to have a holistic approach. And spirituality is one of the five legs or the five, you know, areas I write about on this, on this, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, diagram, which of course you know, I'm willing to send people, or you can look at the book. I'm giving this away free. I, I, like Julie, like um, like Liz, this is a ministry. We're here because we know what it's like to be in hell, and mm-hmm. we wouldn't want our worst enemy to experience what we've experienced. <laughs> True. Absolutely. And unfortunately, not. in America and around the world, a lot of people can't afford to see a psychiatrist mm-hmm. if they don't have insurance or a therapist. So, you know, these tools should be made available to as many people as possible because there's so much suffering caused by these mental conditions. It's, 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 when you really think about it, it's unfathomable. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. It is. Well, you, you know, know, Douglas, you, cry. you know, Douglas, it is. It, it, and you do want to cry. And that's one of the things is about um, gathering a tribe around you that you help create, whether it's with one person or 10 people or through your church or through friends or a neighbor or somebody, you never know what the other person's going through. But I'll tell you what, once you say it, once the words have been spoken, people come out of the woodwork telling you about how they feel what they've been through and what's going on with them. And I'm a very spiritual person, but I do not attend church. So I have an altar at home with a bunch of different things on it that mean a lot to me. And I pray and do my own uh, chanting and so forth. And that gives me a tremendous amount of peace. It really chills me out, relaxes me. And of course, like like a bad girl, uh, when I'm particularly bad, that's when I'm really on my <laughs> prayers, right? I should be doing it every single day, but I try to. But when I'm really particularly bad, that's when I really br- crack down and focus on it, and it really gives me a certain degree of peace and comfort. I gather it from the world, my healing and strength. Mm-hmm. So I really think that the tribe is the most important part of all of this. Would you not agree, Douglas? Yeah, well, the second step of my mental health recovery is is community. The first step is an engineer. By the way, did you say you did you did you say you say the word Om? Yes, I I do. Well, an, that reminds me. What did the guru? What did the guru? <laughs> oh boy! Guru, right? What did the guru say to the hot dog salesman? <laughs> what? Make me one with everything. <laughs> Love it, Douglas. Love it, Douglas. My, my, my wife, Joan, said one thing you have to do when you're on this interview, you have to have at least take one minute where you're funny. Yeah, so, you are very I, funny. You you're very not, funny. Not and where you're funny, where and, there is funniness or laughter right. in the group. We, talk we about always that. laugh. Yep. Mm-hmm. We always I mean, you laugh. Guys, you guys like to chuckle and buddy around we and do. laugh. Oh, so for figured, sure. You, know, you have to. We, we, we all, if you don't laugh, you can't get through any of this mental health stuff. That's true. When you I agree. mean, how many psychiatrists, how many... But how is it? Yeah. How many psychiatrists <laughs> still around? How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah. Well, just one, but the light bulb really has to want to change, right? Oh, so yes. That's, gosh. That's an old, old joke. <laughs> I but haven't heard that one, that, actually. Um, I get that. Yeah, humor, by that's the way, great. in my little diagram or in yes. anybody's you know, yep. diagram, humor and laughter have to be part of the healing mm, process. They have you're to. Laughing, you can't laugh and hold a depressed pa- thought you know, in your head. At the same time, it's very difficult to be laughing and to feel depressed simultaneously. Absolutely, and it's so, very important about the people you surround yourself with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, they rub off on you, right? Yeah. So, um, and you have to also, I have a guy who just write me, I guess, <clears throat> I feel like I'm Ann Landers. Anybody remember who she was? <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, people are writing me with their sob stories, and this one guy said, I, I'm, I've had my breakdown because all I did was watch, you know, uh, the, I just went in and watched, uh, you know, the media, read the papers mm-hmm. and watched MSNBC and, you know, 24-7. I said, well, you're just going to fill your brain with all these bummers and all this yep. misery about how dysfunctional the world is. Mm-hmm. You've got to limit what you put into your True. brain because if it's all that negativity, of course you're going to be overwhelmed. This is not meaning to be politically mm-hmm. apathetic. We have to basically balance, you know, take a balance between political activism and, and, and not overloading our mind with negativity. So it's very important, especially if you're depressed, not to be around a bunch of bad vibes, if you can help it, right? Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and you know, be around beauty. I mean, flowers, my God. Yes. Nature, of course, is, in a, is a humongous healer for so many people, even when they're not. I mean, there's something about the natural world that, that is we're animals. Yeah. We're connected to it. That's why so many people, you know, Love going to natural national parks. So, I absolutely agree um, with all of that. Well, but yeah, so, so I think that spiritual. If a person does have a spiritual path, whether it's Christianity or AA or Judaism or mm-hmm. 
higher, you know, or you know, any type of non-denominational approach. Buddhism, of course, very popular now in the, yeah. in the Western world. Use it because mm-hmm. it is it is a it is a key component. Uh, all, you know, again, AA is nothing but a, is nothing. AA is a, is a program of spiritual transformation. So, I yes. think if you can bring spirituality into your life, it's going to help you with your mood, exercise, yes. social support, all these things. If you put them together holistically, then you have what's called synergy. The whole being the greater. This is a mathematical principle, right? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Well, that is true. If you do X, Y, Z, you're going to create an energy that's greater than any one of them alone, and that's how I think people get better. It's never one thing. You know, when I've asked people about their recovery, and I'm sure, Julie, you can attest to this too, it's never just one thing. You, oh, know, right. you went back to it's, work. It's and many. There are other yeah, things you did. It's you saw many. Liz. I mean, there's always a combination of things yep. that helps us yep. get better. Well, Douglas, I, this hour has <laughs> yes. flown by. Uh, you have done, and it, uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. I certainly hope that we can have you back at some point, which would be wonderful. Um, what about next? <laughs> yeah, I there you go. Um, I, I encourage, thank you so very much. Yes, I encourage everybody you. to catch Douglas Block on his YouTube videos and his weekly live chat, which is absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you, Douglas, Julie, uh, my technician, Dave, and engineer for helping us out today. This is um, a song today we're going to be playing on our outro is by my brother Danny and his group Coup de Trois, Two Ton Bullet, which is kind of what depression's all about yeah. and suicide, right? It's like a two ton bullet. This is Liz Reed, your resident guru, thanking you and wishing you a great day. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And namaste. Namaste.